You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Monster House presents Hello Monster Talkers, are you looking for that perfect gift this holiday season? Well, I recommend heading on over to Amazon.com and looking up Karen Stolzno. You will find her entire catalog of fantastic both fiction and non-fiction titles. If you need a little extra chill on those chilly winter nights, you can't get a better gift for yourself. Happy Holidays. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Today we're going to be talking with Ryan Hopped a doctoral student in paleontology. He's also the co-host of the podcast Science, sort of. And today we're going to be talking about the strange case of the Loveland Frog. This is one of the weirder monsters we've discussed because it's an overlap creature that falls into the world of cryptids, folklore, and yet has a very firm foot in ufology. There are a lot of websites with very shallow and excited overviews of the case, but Ryan did a very thorough deep dive into this story for the Skeptoid podcast in episode 473 of that show. I had looked into the Loveland Frog case while doing preparation for our Kentucky Goblins three-parter for Monster Talk. I went back to the primary sources and have included these in the show notes. The attached PDFs are subsets of the original documents, which are also available on the web, and there's a link to the originals in the show notes. The Loveland Frog case shows up in an addendum in a document produced by the Center for UFO Studies, or QFOS, written by Ted Bletcher and Isabel Davis. Ted Bletcher was the investigator, and he explains how he got involved. The original story was reported by a prolific UFO researcher named Leonard Stringfield. Stringfield was the director of a research group called the Civilian Research Interplanetary Flying Objects, or CRIFO, and he published a newsletter called Orbit. Stringfield told the story of an Ohio businessman who had seen small humanoid creatures in September of 1955. In 1956, Ted Bletcher investigated the case and then wrote about those findings in the 1970s for his Hopkinsville dossier. Bletcher's an amazing guy who was both a prolific UFO investigator and a highly active member of the New York theater scene. He was quite old when I tried to contact him a couple of years back. But I did manage to find some video of him happily singing show tunes in a New York bar to celebrate his birthday. I hope he is still faring well. Bletcher went back and revisited his notes in the 1970s for a write-up about the Kelly Hopkinsville stuff because it was considered related casework. There were a lot of tiny humanoid cases in 1955, and the story gets quite convoluted with multiple anonymous reports, locals with conflicting stories, hints that people are covering things up are trying to hide things, or that maybe the story isn't true, and there's claims that the FBI is somehow involved, and so on. 
This QFOS casebook is quite large, so I've excerpted the relevant Loveland Frog section into a smaller PDF and attached it to the show notes. It's a good read. Bletcher's a good writer and treats all of this without snark and with good journalistic approach. He would be an incredible person to talk to if he's still with us physically and cognitively because beyond his important UFO research, he was also a real pioneer for being openly gay in an America where that was much more dangerous than now. His work with Isabel Davis on the Kentucky Goblins is an absolute must-read for serious UFO researchers. So we were delighted to have Ryan Hopped come talk with us about this and the conversation took some interesting diversions that we'll include in the Patreon Extended Edition at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. But all the core monster stuff's right here in the regular feed, and we're not going to limit your access to the science and history. But I will tell you that the free version has significantly less Cincinnati chili in it. All right, it's time to hop into some monster talk. So in the words of Austin Powers, allow myself to introduce myself. Uh, my name is ryan haupt i'm uh wrapping up the very tail end of my phd in vertebrate paleontology out of the university of wyoming and i just finished a year as the uh, science policy fellow in-house for the geological society of america here in washington dc where i currently live and uh, i host the podcast science sort of and was the guest host uh, along with some other very fine folks for the skeptoid podcast for a little while nice cool welcome to the show Thank you for having me. <laughs> Fun fact for longtime listeners, uh, I am also a, I happen to be a sloth paleontologist, much like your other former guest, Richard Frenia, who is oh, a colleague of mine. Nice. Very cool. Oh, cool. Nice yeah. connection. That was a fun chat. So, Ryan, we've invited you on the show today to talk about the Loveland Frog because you'd written a piece about uh, this topic for Skeptoid going back a couple of years ago. So, to begin with, who or what is the Loveland Frog? So the Loveland Frog is this um, delightful little cryptid from the the town of Loveland, Ohio, which is a, a small suburb outside to the northeast of Cincinnati, Ohio, so in the southwestern portion of the state. And um, my family lives there, so my dad lived there for a while as a kid before moving to nearby Montgomery, Ohio. I lived there for five years as a kid, and I still have family there. So it was I don't know where I first heard about it. I asked my dad, and he doesn't remember hearing about it much when he was a kid growing up. But somehow I became aware of this uh, local cryptid. And as a kid who was interested in cryptozoology, it was really neat to think that there might be one in, in my backyard, so to speak. But um, <laughs> it's it, it's this little thing that was cited. Uh, it's only been cited three-ish times. The first sighting was back in 1955, and it's been cited in the Little Miami River, which is a tributary of the Ohio River that flows through town. Um, people get a little confused. The, the word... Miami for this part of Ohio, there's also a Miami University of Ohio, comes from one of the the tribes that lived in the region. Uh, And the city, Miami, down in Florida, also comes from a completely different tribe, and they're not actually connected. It's sort of a, I know you're a linguist, Karen, so it's sort of a linguistic coincidence that they ended up with the same names in English. Um, Oh, good fun. So the first sighting is in 1955. It's pretty vague. What we know is there was a businessman or traveling salesperson driving the roads near the river late at night. He saw these three short beings, um, described them as sort of scaly, skin skin covered, short, a a couple of feet tall, um, webbed hands and feet. And they were huddled together and standing erect on their hind legs. And they uh, were, were conversing, according to the report. And then... The report differs a little bit. There's a couple different versions of the story. In one version of the story, they're under the bridge. The other version, they're next to the bridge. Uh, in one version, one of the beings holds up a, a metal rod or a wand and a, a, sh- a shower of sparks shoots out from it. And that's what eventually scared the businessman off. And, and that's when he fled the scene. Uh, it's unclear who this was reported to, if any follow-up was done. It's a very, uh, it's not it's not entirely clear what road or bridge this happened on um it, it was supposedly was in springtime that's that's about as much as we can narrow that down and that's the first sighting and the next sighting isn't for about 20 more years when in 1972 uh, a police officer named ray shockey was driving along um the river at night and he uh claims to have been driving very carefully because it was kind of an icy snowy night and he saw this thing, this creature, three or four feet tall, set 50 to 75 pounds, leathery skin like a lizard or a frog. 
And uh, it was crouched down, but it stood up to stand on its hind legs and stare directly at the officer and then climbed over the guardrail uh, that was between the, the road and the riverbank and then headed back down into the river. Supposedly, when uh, the officer reported that to his fellow officers, they went and found scratch marks on the guardrail or abrasions on the guardrail. Um, but it seems like the other officers didn't take it very seriously, and he was somewhat the source of, of some ridicule. It was also his first year on the job, so he was a relatively new officer at the time. And two weeks later, uh, on St. Patrick's Day, Another police officer named Mark Matthews claimed to encounter a similar creature. Uh, he saw something crouched along an icy slickened road. He got out of his car to remove it because he thought it was like a dead or injured animal and he wanted to get it off the road. And when he did, the creature lurched uh, up from this crouch. He fired at the creature with his weapon. Uh, I'm not sure if he hit it or not. And then it went again towards the guardrail, climbed over the guardrail and out of sight. Um he claimed this creature had a tail officer. The first officer's description did not include a tail. And then uh, this second officer, Mark Matthews, he reported it because he, w he was trying to help out, you know, his fellow officer from not being, being made fun of so much. But he later recanted that account and said that what he had seen was just a large lizard. Um, so he thought it might've been an iguana. Uh, he was going to try to capture it to, to support the story of seeing some sort of large reptile out on the roads late at night. Um, but, he gave this uh, recanted story later saying that he didn't see it. There was no monster. It wasn't leathery. It wasn't three to five feet tall. It was just a lizard. It was maybe three feet long. It ran across the road. It was probably blinded by the headlights. There wasn't this aggressive encounter. Um, when I first reported on this story for Skeptoid, I couldn't find a good source for the, the recanting, the recantation. I don't know what the proper word is for uh, a recanted statement, the noun for recanted. Uh, <laughs> but Recantation will do. Okay, let's let's go with it. It's a it's I, a, it's a, re, it's a song. It's a, it's a recanticle. Oh, uh, there you go. I like I th that. I think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so so the there there was this supposed interview where he recanted. I couldn't find that, and that was a little frustrating when I first did the Skeptoid episode. I've since done a little digging when uh, you reached out to me to have me on the show to see if there were any updates, and it turns out that that recantation was from an interview he gave to a person putting together a book of folklore uh, about cryptids and the book didn't include the quote where he basically said everything didn't happen and even he was oh. a little frustrated by that and that's why he's kind of trying to get this story out there um nice. uh, of the correction in his mind so that's sort of it until after i published my skeptoid episode and uh, a, a popular video game you might have heard of it came out called pokemon go and when Pokemon Go came out, not long after, in, in 2016, there was a fresh sighting of uh, some people out playing this game. <laughs> and they they uh, <laughs> were near this lake. There's this tiny little lake in Loveland called Lake Isabella. It runs right parallel to the river. Uh, my dad used to take my sister and I fishing there. It's this cute little lake. And he, he and his uh, friend, uh, Sam Jacobs is the guy, was with his girlfriend, were out playing Pokemon Go. And they spot this thing in the water. Uh, it has sort of a frog-shaped head, these glowing eyes, and they've got a video, they've got some pretty blurry photos, um, and they, they say, hey, we, we saw this, we don't know what it is. Uh, this kind of prompted the officer, Mark Matthews, to come out and say, again, I didn't actually see anything, it was an, a lizard. <laughs> uh, but now we have this new, relatively recent sighting, and other than uh, a musical called Hot Damn, It's the Loveland Frog. Uh, there hasn't been really any any Loveland Frog news since, but it's still kind of a cool little hyper-local cryptid story. So so the Pokemon Go sighting, they saw it in the water, not on their screen, right? They did clarify that in yeah. the reporting <laughs> on this incident. Yep. Uh, I thought... I thought Blake was going to make a, a pun about spawning new stories. Oh, wait, I had science. a pun that I wanted to use before Blake had a chance to use it. Um, Go for it. So I can tell it's very frustrating to, for Mark Matthews that he hasn't been able to get his recanted version of the story um, accepted or widespread. I guess the story of the the frog person just has legs. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a title for this show somewhere in there. I'm sure. I'm sure. But, but. I, I'm really astonished that there have been so few sightings. And again, I think it must just be that we're monstrous people, that we've heard about the Loveland frog and talked about it amongst ourselves but i thought that uh, there were many more sightings but truly more might come out of this game 
there was um, maybe a sighting that happened in Kentucky nearby or southern Indiana where a, a, a woman claimed to get grabbed by a, a hand underwater while there was someone in the river. But And I, I touched on that in the Skeptoid episode, but you know, they didn't see anything. Um, so it doesn't really feel to me like it, it fits super well with the Loveland Frog story. I think it is important to note that the creature from the Black Lagoon came out one year before the first sighting. Um, to me, I think it's it's interesting how much pop culture can often influence what we see get reported in the sort of cryptozoological, mythological, whatever. I, I know uh, it often gets talked about in skeptical circles how when there's a movie about aliens, UFO sightings go up. Yeah. Uh, so I I kind of was thinking in terms of like maybe people were just thinking about like watery monsters more in 1955 than they were previously. <laughs> I don't well, know. Yeah, I, actually, I was going to ask you about that later in, in, in my list of questions, because you've, if you've listened to the show, you know I've been talking about this idea of what I call scripteds, where movies inspire people to see monsters that match up very closely with films they've seen. But we have such limited information about the these original, like the original Case Zero. Like, we don't know if that businessman had seen the creature from the Black Lagoon or really do we, I mean, what's the best guess at who he reported it to? It's like, it's weird because I guess maybe since you talked about how we don't know much about the original sighting, can you talk about where the source material for that sighting is? That's a great question. I couldn't really find a, an original source that I was happy with. You know, I looked, uh, I did my best attempt to go through the records of there's the Loveland Herald is the local paper, and then there's the Cincinnati Inquirer, which is the larger uh, city paper. And I, you know, I searched their databases. I also searched the database of the Loveland Police Department, but Loveland wasn't incorporated as a city. It was a village until 1961. So I don't know if as a, a, a village it would have had a police department or if the records would have been kept super cleanly. And I, I wasn't able to find anything in either their archives. It's entirely possible I don't have the level of access that I need or the the uh, material hasn't been digitized um, short of me going you know, back to Loveland to, to see my folks and go into the archives in my myself, which probably isn't even possible right now. Uh, I don't know how much deeper I can dig to find this original 1955 source. Um, yeah, it's tricky. I know that they talk about it in the, um, in the, in the QFOS. Um, sorry, I'm turning away from the thing to look at my book. Sorry. <laughs> they talk about it in the, uh, Isabel Davis's and Ted Bletcher's, uh, Close Encounters at Kelly and others of 1955. There's a section in the end of, the, of that where they talk about additional sightings. And there's a little mention of it. There's a chapter about the Loveland Bridge case. Did you did you look at that? No, I didn't. Okay. It It's not super informative, I'll be honest. Uh, it, it, is, it is interesting, but it's not super informative. And I, I just... It, it does make me think, though, that this is all kind of connected in some sense with a lot of the the sort of stuff happening in the Ohio River Valley at the time um like the the hand we we talk about on on monster talk we talked about i think um the the idea that the hand was happening that was in was that Evansville i think it's there's yeah there's sort of two versions of the story one of them is Evansville yeah and then i think the the family in the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins case had just come from Evansville. And then the morning after the, the Goblins incident, they went back to Evansville. So uh, I was uh, interested to see that, I mean, there are a lot of articles online about the, the Loveland Frog, and, and I happen to think yours is the best one that's out there. But there are other ones that talk about uh, the, the Loveland Frog well, some state that it goes back to the, the 1950s, um, as we've been discussing. And some say, oh, it goes back to the 1600s. And I was like, what? Uh, and then I found out these references were to Indigenous people, uh, local Indigenous people. And so I'm wondering, is what's the relation, if any, between the Loveland Frog and legends of the, I think it's pronounced Shawnahook, or the river demon of yeah. the local Shawnee people? I looked into that a little bit. So the, the Shawnee people and the Miami, Illinois people are uh, two closely related groups that both occupied that region. They're both in the Algonquin language family. And mm -hmm. I, I dug as much as I, I could. I, I get, I don't know how you tend to handle this on the show, but I tend to get a little wary 
anytime the explanation for a cryptid, you know, goes back to an indigenous source, just because I find that those tend to bit get twisted and molded to serve the needs of the white people trying to claim that they saw a frog monster. Mm-hmm. Um, We've spoken about this before. Mm-hmm. And I don't love that trend. <laughs> no. I, I don't think that's great. So, um, yes, I, I did look into the Shanahook, which is, I've seen translated as a river demon described as a bipedal reptile living along the banks of the little Miami river. Um, I was not able to find any reference to that creature outside of somebody trying to explain the love on frog. I wasn't able to find any primary source for that. I did look into the folklore of the Shawnee people uh, and they do have, you know, water based entities in their mythology. So, you know, basic water spirits, horned water snakes, um, this creature that sounds really cool as described as like a half cougar, half dragon that lived in the deeper parts of the, the water and caused people to drown. And I'm like, if, if I was going to see something, I want to see that. Oh yeah. That, that, <laughs> th- there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, native lore around the, 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 what we call, I think it's, we tend to think, think of it as a wampus cat. Um, the, the part of that lore is about half half panther, half water creature. I mean, to me, is uh, you know, to me, it's folklore. So, it's or is there myth? Is you know, it's a lot yeah. of things, but but it's it's not something that that would fit into a scientific materialist view. But it's a really interesting part of the lore. Um, it reminds me very much of the sort of the um, water horse and the um, other sort of uh, Europe. There's a lot of European creatures that sort of fit that bill as well. Uh, where it's something that will pull you into the water and kill you. We talked about kappas before, and it, like yes, lots of I cultures. Was say, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, yeah, weren't they frog-like or the cucumbers or something? The Japanese. Yeah, they have a bowl of head. Yeah, they have a bowl of, of liquid in their head. Yeah, exactly. And, they, and you, yeah, you have to make them bow down, and then they um, somehow lose their powers when they spill. The water, the water falls out of the bowl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That makes, yeah. that makes logical sense to me. It's just good uh-huh. sense. <laughs> so, so. I wasn't able to to find any, like I said, I wasn't able to find any Shanahook references outside of trying to explain the frogman. And I, and I know sure. that, you know, I, I know that it's not a great idea to use Google Translate to to just do these sorts of things, but I didn't have any other resources available to me. And like, I wasn't even able to use translation services to find out if that's an appropriate translation of that right. word. Right. Uh, yeah. If it's even a real word in any Algonquin language family. Um, so I just, I... Dubious, I, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it just felt like it was a little post hoc uh, appeal to antiquity. Um, Sounding like it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of that in cryptozoology, and we, yeah, we do talk about it a lot. The because it's the is the pattern I keep seeing is people see a monster, and then you know other people see monsters, and then someone comes along and says, "Well, you know, this is part of a long history of monsters. These certainly didn't just start last week when Tony saw that monster, right? These are part. Of, you know, they go to the native lore or whatever they can find, and mm-hmm. and I think, in, in honestly, they appropriate all that other stuff. They find the things they think match and ignore the rest, and and it's 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 dubious, like you say, it's dubious. Yeah, and what I thought, what I was really fortunate in researching the the Loveland Frog as I found out um, that there was actually a folklore professor at the University of Cincinnati. Like, how perfect is that? Uh, this guy named Edgar Slotkin. And he actually talked about the Loveland Frog at uh, the American Folkloric Society's annual meeting in 1985. And he said that this has all the hallmarks of folklore, mm-hmm. not so much the hallmarks of a real thing. Um, so, you know, it, the, the sightings happen in a cycle. The cycle isn't super consistent, but... Um, you know, he said it hadn't been cited in a while. Now he expected another sighting to happen. Uh, and he was right eventually. Um, and he says that I, I love this quote and I think it's really, um, gets to the heart of a lot of the matters that, that we talk about in skeptical circles is one of the first things I tell my students is that we're all the folk. So when we talk about folklore, it's all of us. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's, a, it's a folksy take on folklore, which I think is just perfectly circular and it's, uh, <laughs> charm. <laughs> um, and kind of a, yeah. a a bittersweet story uh, that I wasn't able to include in the Skeptoid episode just because the Skeptoid episode is, you know, just the facts, ma'am. 
I emailed Professor Slotkin because I was hoping, you know, I read this quote from 1985, my episode I, I put out in 2014. So I, I was thought, hey, this is a great opportunity. I'll reach out to this guy. I, you know, I'm an academic. I know that like we get a ton of email, but if it's an email that says, hey, I appreciate your work and would love to talk to you about it, that's a pretty good email to get. Sure. So I went ahead and just typed up a quick email and said, hey, I'm working on this story for the Loveland Frog. It's, you know, a more critical approach, but I used to live in Loveland. So it's important for me that I get it right. And I would love if you have some time to correspond over, either over email or hop on the phone and chat for a little bit. You know, I'd love sort of an updated take on what you think is, is going on with this thing. Uh, I sent that email on a Tuesday. I got a response very quickly from his daughter, and he had unfortunately passed away that Sunday. Oh, no. Yeah. So it was sad. His daughter said, um, and I thought this was really sweet, she said uh, that she and her mother had been going through all of his things, and they've been finding all sorts of emails from people who were looking for help with translations or other aspects of his work. And she said it was really special and made them both smile that the work that he had done was still relevant to people and that people cared about it. And so she actually, you know, thanked me for, for emailing and, and offered to help out. And, you know, if I could put her in, t- uh, she could put me in touch with anybody else. And I just thought that was like, it was bittersweet, but it was really nice coda on things. When you investigate the case, did you see it as being sort of a standalone thing, or did you look into it as being um, part of that sort of wider sort of 1950s thing about seeing mysterious humanoids? I treated it as a standalone thing just because I had known about it growing up in Loveland, and, like, there's a really beautiful bike trail that runs along the Little Miami River, and so, like, I remember biking along that trail and being like, I hope I see it today, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a thing. Like, to me, it wasn't, it wasn't part of a larger trend. It was part, it was this cool little quirky nugget of this place that I had lived. Um, so, so that was always kind of how it existed in my worldview. And when I first, uh, did my research into this, um, the idea of it being, you know, an escaped pet iguana or something like that seemed, uh, a, a plausible op- explanation given the second sighting and especially the second of the second sightings, um, where it was pretty explicitly recanted to be an iguana. But the, the issue I had was, an iguana surviving an Ohio winter, right? That was where I sort of (laughs) lost the plot a little bit. Um, So when I did my updated research to make sure I was prepared to come talk to y'all, so originally in the Skeptical episode, I said, you know, maybe it was a mangy dog or mangy coyote. I feel like that's, uh, I feel like our, our, and you, I'm sure this is stuff you guys have talked about before. Our mental search image of what animals are supposed to look like gets pretty narrow. And so when you see something that doesn't quite fit into the box that you have in your mind's eye for what that thing should look like, it can be hard to identify, especially if it's at night and you're seeing it briefly and whatever, you know, adrenaline starts pumping. So I thought, you know, the, the old mangy coyote theory uh, that wasn't completely outside their own possibility for a coyote to be in that region. It was a little bit outside its known range at the time, but maybe that's why it wasn't doing so well. That was kind of the explanation I gave. But based on the updated version of the uh, the recantation by Mark Matthews, where he, he says explicitly, "No, this thing was an iguana. It was a it was a you know medium sized iguana." I started trying to figure out how to make that explanation work, and I learned, which I did not know when I originally did the episode, that there was actually a a, a boot factory, a really a pretty good sized big boot factory that was north of Loveland on the river. And I imagine that that boot factory was probably pumping a good bit of warm water into the river. Uh, you know, we, we were talking about sort of what was in the zeitgeist at the time. Another thing that was in the zeitgeist at the time in, in this part of the country were very polluted rivers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Cleveland River, the river in Cleveland caught fire multiple times. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, I hope it wasn't as bad in the Loveland area, different watershed. But um, the, if the if that factory was pumping warm water into the river, I think the idea that a, a guana could have maybe survived the winter by staying in that pocket of, of warm water is a little more plausible. The fact that right. the animal was described as sluggish and not moving much is consistent with a cold blooded animal, not enjoying being in sort of an icy, icy environment. Okay. Um, iguanas can drop their tails. So it's again, not completely outside the realm of the possibility that the sighting where it doesn't have a tail is an iguana with a dropped tail. They will grow back. So the fact that it was sighted later with a bit of a tail, maybe again is consistent with an iguana. Um, so I'm I'm back more on the iguana train than I was before. I, uh, the only thing I wasn't quite sure of 
was how popular were iguanas as pets in the 1970s. Um, I looked into it a little bit. They weren't completely uncommon. They were they they had a spike in popularity in the early to mid 90s. But you know, I, I even texted my dad about this. I was like, Dad, you know anybody with iguana growing up in you know South uh, Southwestern Ohio when you did? He said, I don't remember anyone having iguana, but I also wouldn't be surprised if someone had. So like to him, it sort of fit as he as a a potential but not super common pet in the area at the time a lot of times these iguanas you know they get bigger than people anticipate when you first get them you can hold them in the palm of your hand and and after a few years and these animals can live 20 years in captivity after a few Mm. years you know they they outgrow their tank you you don't know what to do with this now three foot four foot lizard um and maybe you maybe you try to flush it maybe you dump it in the river maybe you dump it in the lake where you go fishing maybe it just maybe it escapes i don't know so um i'm putting a little more stock in the in the wild iguana theory of late given the new information i was able to find in that you prompted me to look up by inviting me on the show so actually i emailed brian i was like hey brian can you update the episode a little bit or (laughs) provide you know when you do your next corrections episode can you make sure uh, i set the record straight here um, well, I, I did see a 1998 documentary about uh, some of the effects of radiation on iguanas, and uh, yeah, they can get quite large. Um, was that what, the one with Matthew Broderick? It was. You saw that? Yeah, it was very it interesting. Is. Yeah, I learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know someone who has a pet iguana, and it's his uh, name is Gort, and he's enormous, uh, probably about four foot long, and just so big, and um, yeah, just keeps growing out of all of his tanks and uh, eats a lot. And yeah, they're amazing creatures. Yeah. And the uh, the biggest naturally occurring reptile in that part of the country is the snapping turtle, alligator snapping turtle. And they get pretty big, but the descriptions just of how this animal looked and moved just didn't match at all with a big snapping turtle. So I kind of discounted that one. So and... the gamma ray hypothesis is out. Is that? I think so. <laughs> okay. That's, well, so I, I personally... I know everybody's leaning in. What does Blake think? What's our... <laughs> but Blake, I, I do, what do you think? I do like the folklore hypothesis because this reminds me very much of things like um, the Goat Man, where it's it's a it's not really biologically plausible, and it's uh, also tied to this weird. You know, it's tied to a bridge, and the fact that they had this sort of magic wand in some of the stories it's all it's all quasi occult you know it's 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 very it's intriguing i don't know i i think like it seems to me it reminds me very much of the sort of ufo uh humanoid like i don't think there's a ufo associated with this case but in the region at the time it seemed like there was a lot of that going around yeah, I mean, just upriver uh, along the banks of the Ohio River uh, on the border between Ohio and West Virginia, you know, you're getting into Mothman territory. I've heard of that one, yeah. Was like, oh, <laughs> guess what? You just got yourself a That's second a appearance bit. by Ryan Help to come on and talk about the Mothman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, we, when we left Ohio, we moved to West Virginia, and West Virginia's got its own just bonkers set of weird cryptids. You got the Braxton County Monster, you got the Mothman, we got all kinds of stuff. So, so um, wh- 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 where, where did you go after that? I <laughs> uh, graduated high school, moved to Santa Cruz, California, which is near a pretty good Bigfoot museum. Bigfoot, yep. I've yeah. been there. <laughs> you've, you've been there too. Uh, I have. Museum's a strong word, but it's it's a nice collection of Bigfoot paraphernalia and some uh, research efforts. So you're following uh, cryptids around the country? Yeah. Is that your plan? <laughs> I think they might be following me. Ah, uh, yeah. Speaking of uh, stories around the country, have you heard of Frog Boy, Colorado's Frog Boy? I've not. I've heard of Bat Boy, and I did live in uh, – and, and if you were asking about my geography, I lived in Laramie, Wyoming for a while. That's where I did my Ph.D. work, and that's oh, uh, yeah. a few towns over from where the Jackalope was created. Yeah. Because yeah. the Jackalope comes from you know uh, Douglas, stuff. <laughs> Douglas, Wyoming. Uh, well, because uh, a few years ago I wrote an article about Frog Boy – um, I think he's very little known, um, but he made appearances, I think, back in the 1970s along Interstate 76, which is near Brighton, if you know where that is in Colorado. And um, so a number of people saw this this frog boy character. And so I wrote about it for uh, for CSI. I used to have a, a column with them. And um, so it seems like, to me anyway, this is close to a lake called Bar Lake and not too far away from Loveland, Colorado. So my theory was that that was a kind of transplanted uh, urban legend from Loveland, Ohio. And um, that was because again, it dates back to the 1970s around the the second major sighting. 
Um, but yeah, or, number, or uh, all cities named Loveland are connected by uh, amphibian portals. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. That's a really good theory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think if we take a if we take a Bayesian perspective, I would say that has a lower prior probability. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> I I love that idea though, Karen. That's so cool. That, yeah. Like, yeah, maybe because because I think I think I sort of I believe a hybrid of sort of what Blake is saying and and the iguana theory. So I think like the first story from the fifties to me is probably purely folkloric. I imagine that you know. Mm-hmm. school kids around the schoolyard one of them saw the creature from the black lagoon and then made up a story about it, making it a local thing uh yeah you know which is a, a lot of hand waving i am legitimately waving my hands when i say <laughs> that story i get i get that that's not a super definitive take but then i think uh, an officer you know two officers in in loveland in the 70s probably did see an iguana and knew the story from the 50s from when they the, the first officer who saw it was a lifelong Loveland resident. So I imagine he would have heard wow. the story at some point. And mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, did what we do in these situations. When you see something you can't explain, your brain, you know, fits the pattern based on on your belief system based on. And, and if your belief system includes that, you know, sort of folkloric take on things, um, mm-hmm. I think you just you just pattern it onto that and make it make sense in that way. And then it just kind of went from there. Well, I'm going to have to quote myself from the article. I went back and took a look at it, and I did ask people in that general area if they'd heard of Frog Boy. And so it was uh, younger people tended to not have heard of the story, but uh, older people seemed to have heard about Frog Boy at some point. But I remember talking with one older lady, and uh, I asked her about Frog Boy. Had she seen Frog Boy before? And she said, "Uh, Frog Boy, is that the guy who paints his body green and runs naked through the streets? What? <laughs> oh yeah, what? <laughs> that was pretty much my my question to her as well. <laughs> I don't know what uh, where that came from. What year was this? <laughs> when I researched this, yeah, it was uh, 2010. Now. So this is well before oh, legalization. Okay, just just checking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Before it was no, illegal, I can't. I'd never yeah. heard of the the Colorado version. That is fascinating. That's really interesting. Well, my husband was the first to to tell me about it, and I think he'd been um, I mean, he'd heard about it as a kid, as a teenager in uh, high school, and um, everyone knew about it at the time at the school. But I really do think it must be tied to the Loveland Frog somehow. So it's just really interesting. And I'm waiting for Blake to make a, a pun about hopping uh, uh, about urban uh, legends. Hopping uh, I, I I told you I wasn't going to do that. Uh, <laughs> You almost stuck that one past me. Wow. So what about uh, other frog cryptid legends around the country, around the world? So we've spoken about the Loveland frog and frog boy in Colorado. Are you aware of any other kinds of frog cryptids out there or not out there? Uh, I am not. Uh, I know there's some giant lizard. There was a giant lizard supposedly from Kentucky. Uh, But the story there is is pretty thin, even by obscure cryptid standards. Um, Mm Yeah. And other than that, no, I'm not really super familiar with any other frog-based cryptids in the the U.S. or abroad. If, if folks are aware, I would love, you know, please uh, let me know. I'm, I'm interested. Well, I'd mentioned in my Frog Boy article the Hodag hoax. So I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that at all. It was uh, in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a Wikipedia entry for it. And the the creature was described as having the head of a frog the grinning face of a giant elephant's 
thick, short legs set off by huge claws, the back of a dinosaur, and with a long tail with spears at the end. Nice. Frog, frog like with the head of a frog, but um, yeah, that was. Yeah, kind of a a chimera type monster. Like it's like comprised of other animals. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But you know, I think, Uh, don't don't they have like a Hodag festival now? I think they do. I think they do. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems like a lot of the frog cryptids seem to be hybrids, seem to be a frog boy or a frog man or um, frog, some other kind of creature. Yeah, I guess you just, it has to be you know big enough to be worth talking about, right? A normal frog yes. sized thing isn't even if the, the if you saw a normal sized frog that had the face of a human, that'd be weird. But uh, I think it, you got to make it big enough. I do know that um, there's a, a golden toad in Central America that is um, sort of that region's version of the ivory-billed woodpecker. It's this thing that's probably extinct, but there are sightings that get talked about from time to time. Um, is that the African white frog? No, no. This is a uh, this is a toad that is native to um, Central America, so it's not an introduced oh, okay. species. Okay. It's uh, but is extinct. And uh, I did some, I studied abroad in undergrad down in Costa Rica in Monteverde, where this toad used to be very common and uh, have spent a lot of time back in Costa Rica and Panama for uh, my research. And um, yeah, there's talk of, you know, people always talk about like spots where they've seen this supposedly extinct toad sort of gets treated. Yeah. Like ivory billed woodpecker or the um, Tasmanian tiger or something like that. So I don't know if that counts as a true cryptid. So is it, is it truly a cryptid if it's a recently extinct thing that, starts popping up again we've treated them that way yeah because you've got like the tasmanian tiger that sort of thing where it's it's the thylacine is almost certainly extinct but people keep reporting them you know have there been any carolina panther reports since it was declared locally extinct well you get these alien big cat reports all the time but usually they turn out to be house cats or dogs or, or dogs or, <laughs> or anything but the actual thing and, you know it's it's peculiar it, 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 there's so many trail cams out there now and uh you know people can now do environmental dna studies i think if these animals do exist they're going to come out of the woodwork like it, it, they'll be identified definitively which i think is wonderful so yeah to see more than one yeah i i'm very excited about that sort of that sort of work where you you think you see something and then now you can get it on a trail cam or they can like go just get get water from the local pond or, you know, get some dirt samples and, you know, you can insects, uh, you know, I think Todd Dissertail talks to us about collecting blood sucking insects and then using those blood meals to do a broad spectrum, you know, DNA analysis of all the creatures in the region. That's just fantastic. Yeah, I, I really love cool. it. So, well, I'll tell you, I don't have a good explanation for this most recent sighting from 2016. I, I was uh, telling Brian, I was actually a little embarrassed because my article uh, came out in 2014 and, this this is the year 2020 for folks who are listening to this in the far future, uh, you know, as they wander the wastelands. Assuming <laughs> we have a far future, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I'm assuming somebody is like living in a real life Fallout game at this point by the time they're living to this in the far future. And so I, I was a little embarrassed that the sighting was closer in time to when my episode came out than when I'm talking to y'all right now. But um, I don't. I honestly, I gotta say, like, I, there's there's grainy photos and there's a, a shaky dark video. And I can't quite tell what this thing is. Um, the lake doesn't directly connect to the river, but if this animal is big enough, the distances involved are not uh, significant for, for an animal supposedly that size. As far as I can tell, it looks like it might be a person in a dry suit with like two headlamps on the sides of their head that look like eyes. I don't know why a person would be wandering around Lake Isabella with a dry suit at night with cameras on their head. So it makes me wonder if there's a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of, of silliness going on here. Well, I guess it's like the guy that likes to paint his body green and run naked through the streets. Yeah, <laughs> so, so you know, it could be some Patterson-Gimlin vibes in terms of, of we stumbled across this thing. Yeah, I, mean, I guess Pokemon Go is the new yeah. uh, <laughs> way to just explain why you were wandering around your neighborhood late at night. Uh, looking yeah, for- good um, point. <laughs> so, Although so, I have to say, playing Pokemon Go, looking for monsters... Is a pretty good way to prime yourself to find monsters, right? You yeah. are certainly sure. monsters on the mind. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the one sort of interesting quirk of this story is I don't really know what's going on with this most recent sighting. Um, well, we so did. If- we talked about a, a like one 
uh, iguana documentary. Did you see the sort of uh, humanoid frog documentary uh, with uh, Mr. Roddy Piper? Hell, hell comes to Frogtown. Have you seen that? <laughs> you've, 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 uh, Have I stopped to you? My, no, my pop depths. Yeah. No, no, no. You got to You got to see Hell Comes to Frogtown because it combines uh, nuclear post apocalypse with frog people with Roddy Piper. I, I really, it's got everything. So yeah, highly right, recommend. Cool. Highly recommended. Makes me think of this uh, musical. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Oh yeah, good point. <laughs> That's a, oh, so the uh, Hot Damn It's the Love and Frog was a musical that was performed at the 2014 Cincinnati Fringe Festival. And as far as I can tell, that's the only time the performance has been put on. And I wasn't able to find any um, clips or any uh, recorded songs from the the performance. It looks like a really fun sort of uh, old-timey bluegrass uh, musical about the Love One Frog. I would love to get an opportunity to see the performance at some point, but I haven't yet yeah. been able to do that. Although I wish I wish I'd known ahead of time, maybe I could have written a sort of Hamilton style rap uh, about the Loveland Frog and inserted it there. That'd have been fun. A dozen frogmen, amphibians spawned in a pond and then taught how to spark a wand in a town they call Loveland, raised on some river sand. Grow up to be the focus of you cryptid fans. Or maybe not. <laughs> or maybe not. Karen's always trying to make the show classy, and I'm just, mm, what? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> if you you need more uh, frog and toad action, we do have our recent cane toad episode as well, if you haven't heard that. Oh, we'll check that out. Yeah, no, I yeah. was, um, I, I spent the last few days getting caught up. I, I was telling, um, uh, I was telling Karen that, like, because I don't have a commute anymore, my podcast listening has kind of plummeted. Uh, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. So I went on a bike ride today and caught up on the the Mopinguari and the Jefferson Monster Hunter. Just a consensus. Oh, fun, fun. Super relevant to the work that I do, and I know Richard. Um, so uh, uh, I really appreciated Richard saying, uh, you know, you don't have to include this, but it was something along the lines of like people who disagree with you are your best collaborators because they point out all the things and oh. like a lot, a lot of my research kind of butts heads a little bit with some of the stuff Richard says so <laughs> I was I was heartened to hear him say that that uh, he didn't take it personally yeah uh, no that yeah. was I thought one of the best stances on uh, how to do science I've heard someone say out loud professionally you know I mean I certainly yeah. don't have any ill will towards him I just you know he put out like like he was saying you know he puts out these sort of uh, big idea hypotheses, and so I'm like, okay, well, like, we let's test that. Like, yeah, let's, you know, exactly. Let's get, yeah, let's yeah. Find a way to, to see if that's happening or not. They and, certainly uh, sound cool, but you know, where how do you back it up exactly? Right. Although uh, I have I, to say, the best thing about that to me uh, was he invited me to come have barbecue. So someday, <laughs> l- listen, man, let me know when you're going on that trip because I would love to a go have some of Richard's Uruguayan barbecue and B, I would love to go uh, just check out some of those dig sites. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it all sounded good to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. And this is uh, yeah a, a bit too far away from what we just said, but uh, what we'd said about uh, the interview about cane toads. But I just wanted to mention that that was the interview with Stephen Johnson from I think uh, September that yeah. came out. Yeah, not, not too far back, just towards and, the end of last month. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I will definitely check that out. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, uh, well, not fun's probably not the right word. It was informative. I learned a lot. I, I love it. I love it. So, yeah. It's fun too and kind of gross. <laughs> it's definitely gross. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, anything else that you want to treat? No, no. I like, think we've hit all the, the big points here that I wanted to talk about. And uh, yeah. what about you, Ryan? Did we get to all the stuff you wanted to talk about? In terms of the the Loveland Frog stuff, yeah, I think so. Um, I guess just general plug for Loveland, Ohio. It's a really cute little <laughs> suburb town outside of Cincinnati. So if you find yourself in that region of the country, uh, you know, go like go spend some time either walking or biking along the oh. trail there. It's a really pretty little trail. It's worth your it's it's you know worth an afternoon. Do you um, get um do you get tourists and visitors who come by looking for frog for uh, the Loveland Frog or uh, is there any kind of memorabilia or souvenirs, or is it just? I don't think I don't think there is. If if there if there is, it's been you know since my last visit to town. 
Um, so yeah, no, as far as I know, it was always just kind of a, the, it, it existed solely in the realm of local legend. I imagine it would not surprise me at this point if there is some place to, to go get some, some merch or, or learn a bit more. But, um, yeah, when I was living, you know, I was living there in the, in the nineties. So it was, uh, it was just a quirky thing that people talked about, but, um, sure. Love to get there someday. What what was being spotted there was uh, like a first level adventurers encounter just waiting to happen. Like there was the, the GM just put some little frog people there, and they were going to get killed by some first level Dungeons and Dragons adventurers, and that was the end of that. And that's <laughs> we never hear anything else about it because those guys moved on to other things. You know, <laughs> uh, there is a there is a playable race of, of frog people now in Five E called the Grungs. Oh, that's interesting. Oh. My my wife has a Grung character that she built, so. That's fantastic. Do they have to stay moist? They do, actually. Yeah. You have, there's a water. There's a water uh, requirement of of making sure you don't dry out. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That, I can see that as being a downside. I hope they have some good upsides. Uh, poison skin. So it, you know, she built a, a grung monk. So he's a hand to hand combatant. So if he touches do you have a, is there a variant where it's hallucinogen, or is it strictly just toxic? <laughs> I think it's strictly toxic, but it would be that would be fun if you yeah. could if you build it that yeah. way. I mean, you know, homebrew rules, rules if the DM allows it. I think yeah. you could pull that off. That's uh, funny. Well, I, I think that this uh, brings us to our final question, Ryan, and uh, our signature question for the show: What's your favorite monster? Oh, I've struggled so much with this all day. Um, can I can I get a working definition of monster exactly? Just so I feel like that's going to color my answer a little bit. It's we, um, generally it's whatever you want it to be, right? I mean, well, that's, yeah, it can be any any real creature or legendary creature, anything that uh, could be described as monstrous through to to people. We have a very broad definition. Uh, see, I wish I. Okay, for me, I'm going to keep it in the realm of not real. I think when you get into the real world, I, it, for whatever reason, I mean, it loses the magic. I think in terms of, like, a monster that I fear, it's it's the gray aliens or or, or a hyper-powerful AI. Mm. Just, okay. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of, you know, alien UFO stories as a kid. I still think that in terms of something scary, there's... If... if there really were beings from other solar systems visiting us regularly. They would be more powerful than anything we could deal with. And we, you know, if they wanted to do anything other than abduct us and probe us, we would not have much of a chance. So that to me is scary. Um, I had sleep paralysis once and, and actually had like the whole vision, right. Of the, it wasn't a, it wasn't an old hag and it wasn't a gray alien. It was just this formless shadow being in my room. Uh And mm-hmm. I wonder if that's because I don't Likes really with that. believe in gray aliens and I don't really believe in witches and succubus and all those other things. So, like, did I just mm-hmm. get a blank hallucination? <laughs> so if shadow <laughs> beings are an item, that might be on, yeah. my, on my list of things. Um, you know, as Blake and I were talking about, I've, I, I've only recently in adulthood actually gotten into playing D&D. And once you have a monster manual on your desk, your, your options for monstrous beings expands greatly. Uh <laughs> But I have to say, so this is going to be a little self-serving, but I'm just going to lean into it. Um, around the same time y'all started Monster Talk, I also started a podcast called Science Sora, which is one of the reasons that Blake and I have, and, and Karen have had a few interactions over the years. And we actually created our own cryptid as a, a mascot for the show, uh, Peaches the Brachylope, and it's a it's a Camarasaurus. It's not actually a Brachiosaurus. It's a Camarasaurus skull, which is one of the long-necked sauropod dinosaurs, very similar to a Brachiosaurus, with uh, moose antlers on it so it's essentially oh, nice. the dinosaur version of a jackalope and uh, i must say yeah and, and and there have been many sightings uh, you know people have, <laughs> have seen this have seen maybe not peaches exactly but we there there <laughs> definitely been sightings of brachylopes out in the wild that have been sent into us by our listeners so i think uh, <laughs> the brachylope might have to be my my pick as self-serving as it is sounds good <laughs> yeah that's fantastic well is there some art we could throw into the show notes for that Yes, I will send you a link to the Flickr gallery of all the different pieces of art that people have sent in. They've spotted it in nebulas out in space. It's been spotted. It's um, there was a spotting on a volcano in Hawaii. Just uh, I don't know, Hawaii being one of the the only state in the union where there has not been a Bigfoot sighting. So we decided to go ahead and preempt Bigfoot and get a get a brachial about there first. Um, <laughs> so it's all no, that's great. That's a really good answer, and and we will put a link to your uh, first of all to your Loveland Frog piece at Skeptoid. And to your show, is there anything else you want us to link to? Uh, my personal website is ryanhaupt.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Haupt and at Ryan Haupt, respectively. 
Uh, I can send you the links for all that stuff. But generally, I'm, you know, super excited to talk about this stuff with people. Uh, I've got a contact page on the podcast page and on my personal page and also, you know, just open DMs on Twitter. So if anybody wants to follow up with me, tell me about their own local weird cryptid or, or frog sighting. Uh, I'm, I'm here, man. I'm excited to chat, especially now that I'm an extrovert trapped inside for the foreseeable future. So please help me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for, for talking about this uh, uh, I think I still think he's a little bit obscure, but beloved cryptid. Well, we we have had some requests for this topic yeah. on Facebook. So, and then the the patches, the uh, monster talk patches that you've had made. Oh yeah, um, yeah, I yeah, think, yeah. But that's what really inspired this conversation and this episode. So, I think he's more popular than you think. Well, I, I I'm confident that our listeners are going to know exactly what we're talking about, and we'll love hearing this this deep dive into it. I just mean in mm-hmm. general. I I think. Uh, this is just, I, I don't think this little guy is as well known as, you know, your Bigfoots and your Nessies and that oh, sort yes, of thing. Certainly. So, well, it. we're working on it. Yeah. And yeah we'll that. We're doing our part. That's right. We are. So, oh, yeah. We're to, to lead to some more sightings for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, before you um, kick me off the call, yeah. may I offer one small sloth clarification that you can either include. Uh, Recorded, sure. or you can just do do how do with it whatever you want. Okay, yeah. based on, based on your two sloth conversations that I listened to recently, the uh, the Mopinguari and the Jefferson Monster Hunter. Um, I think there was a slight confusion about the fossil that was described by Jefferson and the South American taxa. Okay, this so is the one of the one of them is the is it Megatherium? Is that right? Megatherium is the South American one. Okay, next is the North American one. Right, but. The only clarification I want, it's not even a correction, it's just a clarification, uh, that there were, sloths were very diverse back in the, the day, you know, from, they, they first evolved like 35 million years ago and, you know, went mostly extinct 10,000 years ago, but we still have a couple alive today. Um, so the Megalonyx is a perfectly legitimate taxa name that Jefferson gave it. It was eventually uh, fully named Megalonyx Jeffersoni in honor of him, and it's a completely different animal than the megatherium that lived in South America. So okay. I just heard a little, I heard a little confusion from the historian and I just wanted to clarify. Oh, 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 in the, in the Jefferson episode, right. But not, <laughs> not in the, in the other one, I thought we were very clear that they were separate species. Cause we talked about the one that was found in a cave in America versus the one that was found in a cave in South America. Yeah, in the in the with with Richard, you talked about yeah. There's the cave ones from South America, which are the Mylodon Darwini, and then the North American cave ones are Nothotheriopsis, and then the Megalonyx was actually also found in a cave, uh, not far from where I grew up after I left Cincinnati in West Virginia. <laughs> so, nice. Uh, but the diversity of sloths there, you know, to, today we have um, two genera of sloth in two different families and about five or six species. In the fossil record, there are approaching 80 to 90 genera across five families sorry wow. my dog is a little bit um so like you you know c- comparatively like that's like if you look at modern felids modern cats or whatever there's about 40 or 50 species so we're talking like double the number of cats right that's how diverse mm-hmm. and populous they were and they lived all the way from like the yukon territory of alaska down to the southern tip of chile and argentina so they were everywhere well speaking of chile <laughs> Just as a final parting observation, uh, the the Mapaguari, it, well, it's not my favorite cryptid. It seems to be the one I'm most like uh, because I've adopted the life of sloth, and I also seem to be developing a, a another mouth in my belly. Apparently, this is just... <laughs> <laughs> all of us right now. Isn't the Mapaguari associated with a really terrible smell, though? Are you again, sure you want to go again, or as I told my kids today, hey, kids, I just took my first shower of the virus season. <laughs> you know, you were in the Mapaguari episode, I think you do a really great job of talking about the ways we cherry pick mythological creatures to fit the cryptozoological uh, agenda. And um, the fact that the Mapaguari is associated with a really bad smell, I think is actually a tick against the sloth explanation because in all my work with modern sloths, they don't smell at all. It's one of their like defense mechanisms is to basically be smell neutral. Nice. And I don't know that that would have been the case with the, the fossil sloths, but um, at least the modern sloths are, are not at all. Un- well, alive modern sloths are not at all unpleasant to be around in terms of smell. I don't know. After that conversation, I can't help stop thinking. I can't stop thinking about, uh, 
these sort of Megatherium fighting a Glyptodon. I'm just like, I want that to be true. What's going on? <laughs> did, you the, um, did you see the paper that just came out about the footprints in uh, New Mexico? No, no. Uh, it's a sloth footprint with a human footprint inside it. Whoops. Mm. No, just... <laughs> Which means that, like, I mean, we know that they overlapped, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the question that Richard touched upon is, like, was the extinction caused by people or was it caused by climate change? I'm a one-two punch person, I think. Why you not know? both? You're yeah, like... exactly. <laughs> climate was changing and humans were hunting and uh, something Richard didn't touch on. And again, I'm, you know, I, I've taken up enough of your time, so cut me off whenever. But um, it doesn't take much disturbance for an animal that has a long gestation time and only gives birth to one or two young a year to have their reproduction cycle disrupted enough to have the population collapse uh, elephants <laughs> excuse me sorry <laughs> that's, that's one of the reasons that like the, the the extinction at the end of the pleistocene was a megafaunal extinction it was the only the biggest things on the environment that went extinct yeah yeah so that that's consistent with just a little if you increase pressure in just two yeah, it was ways, terrible because like simultaneously you had humans entering the scene hunting them and they also had just developed birth control it was just a terrible coincidence <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I've, I've only got one get, earphone that's working now, so it's kind of hard Oh, you're to going hear. away. No, no problem. We, we need um, to end this, but, but I keep talking. Sorry. Yeah, yeah well, I, I need to get going. I need to give the little guy a bath. But, uh, Ryan, it was really great chatting with you. And and I think that was her battery going down. Sorry. <laughs> but well, I appreciate you having me. This was a lot of fun. I was really excited to, to come on. Hope I did a good job. You did. You did great. And uh, uh, we'll get this out. Uh, it'll be a few weeks because we got a few in the can. But thanks so much for coming. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, if you ever want to talk about Mothmen's or other other sloth stuff, um, I, I feel like you've covered the the basics of all the sloth cryptid stuff out there so I, there might not be much use for me coming back on but no no but it's fun to talk about we'll <laughs> always about. All I'll, right. give, I'll give you i'll give you one other really cool sloth fact okay and i'll say goodbye the in the caribbean there were a lot of sloths in the ground sloths in the caribbean they survived up until about four and a half thousand years ago so they survived much much longer than the continental ground sloths so there were ground sloths walking around after the great pyramids in egypt had been finished wow that is interesting. And that is cool. Were they also probably wiped out by people? Because that seems that was an almost definite people wipe out. Yeah, that's that's a oh, this island's great except for these giant hairy assholes, <laughs> which are also delicious. It turns out. So. More likely that like this island's great. Look at all these slow moving buffets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Have a good night. Okay, guys. Good night. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Ryan Hopped about a monster known as the Loveland Frog. Check our show notes for some links to some of the primary documents related to this case. And again, I've attached two PDFs that are excerpted from those larger documents. Sadly, I will not be able to fully produce the amphibian musical I gave you a sample of. The backers of Salamander Hamilton were just too worried about incurring the wrath of Lin-Manuel Miranda. But don't worry, I've got more ideas. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Look, I'm not racist, but you look good for your age. She was asking for it. You're crazy. 
That's so gay. Have you ever wondered why certain language has the power to offend? It's often difficult to recognize the veiled racism, sexism, ageism, and other isms that hide in our everyday language. Monster Talk co-host Karen Stolzno's new book, On the Offensive, sheds light on the derogatory phrases, insults, slurs, stereotypes, tropes, and more that make up discrimination in language. Each chapter addresses a different area of prejudice, race and ethnicity, gender identity, sexuality, religion, health and disability, physical appearance, and age. Drawing on hot-button topics and real-life case studies, and delving into the history of offensive terms, a vivid picture of modern discrimination in language emerges. By identifying offensive language both overt and hidden, past and present, this book uncovers vast amounts about our own attitudes, beliefs, and biases, and reveals exactly how and why words can offend. You can find your copy of On the Offensive through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookseller. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. Monster House presentation. Reflect for a moment on the art of cinema. Think of a motion picture like The Last Emperor and the nine Academy Awards it so richly deserved. Consider the profound emotional experience of a truly great film. Then forget it, sweetheart. Yes, better blow it out your exhaust pipe, cinema lover, because here comes fun with hair on it. Oh, that's disgusting. You're going to see the biggest piece of shattering entertainment that ever molested your sensibilities. That sounds great. Want a plot? Here it is. It's the end of the 20th century, and mankind has blown its wad. <laughs> the fate of humanity rests in the groin of one man. Their leader, Commander Toady, has kidnapped some pilgrims who wandered into their territory. We're gonna get them out, and then you're gonna get them pregnant. Yes, if you want a brilliant film, you can go right to... We're going to Frogtown. Hell comes to Frogtown. <laughs> Starring wrestling superstar, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Move over, Mr. Mel Gibson and Mr. Robert De Niro. Here comes acting talent and sensitivity like you've never seen. You are one weird dude. And speaking of talent, turn green, Ms. Meryl Streep. Here's Sandal Bergman, the exquisite star of Red Sonia and Conan the Barbarian. Hell comes to Frogtown, a story of mutant sex and people like you and me. It's hot, it's wet. And it's bad. It's hell comes to Frogtown. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.